G'day, it's Phil here. Last week in the special series on the Game Changers, looking at a future fit school community, we met Lorna Vegan and we explored with her the wonderful legacy of her own schooling, both at primary and at secondary level. And we started to talk about the way in which we grow and we grow people and we support learning not only for our students but also our teachers and how so much of it is based on relationship and belonging and becoming. I'm really looking forward to part two of this conversation. I can't wait. Let's go. Before you start your conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, could you tell us a little bit about our Series 10 sponsor? Of course, Adriano. Over the past decade, the team from A School for Tomorrow has been working with hundreds of thousands of members of school communities across the world to think about the character of an excellent education. They've concentrated their learning about what makes a school thrive into a unique suite of digital survey tools called Thriving for students, teachers, and schools. To learn how you can help your school measure how well it's achieving its purpose, go to aschoolfortomorrow.com forward slash thriving. Let's go. Lorna, g'day. G'day, how are you? I'm not too bad for an old bloke. Thank you very much for joining me again. I wonder if we might pick up the conversation from last time where we were looking at your schooling experience and talking about what a rich experience it was. You let slip something, which is, again, perhaps a little bit like my own experience there, that when you left school and then you went off to university, you came back to your school. Tell me about this. Tell me about Tell me about Lorna leaving school and coming back to school. Yes, yeah, so I suppose a really great opportunity to go back to what we were talking about last time, which was about my school, the King's Hospital. Absolutely great experience there and had tremendous teachers, particularly my English and English literature teacher, Miss Frances Hill, who became the first principal of the school. She was an inspiration uh, to me of women in education and, and women in leadership early on. Uh, and, uh, you know, really happy. It's, it's amazing to see teachers and then celebrate their success because uh, I also had uh, Mr. Andrew Deacon. He was never my teacher, um, but he used to run extra sessions to discuss literature and drama after school and there'd be a whole lot of students would just come and hang on his absolute every words and I was so delighted last week to realize that he actually won the Irish Times National Poetry Competition uh, with his poem Luke and Geometry but I'm so excited and I know this sounds a little bit nerdy but I can't wait to actually teach his poem to my students it's a really interesting there's nothing nerdy about that (laughs) There's nothing nerdy about that at all. Can I tell you, can I, I mean, you know, again, it's like teaching, it's like when you write your own text and then you get to teach from your own text. You know, you just get an absolute buzz. Well, you get a buzz the first time you do it, then you get bored the second time, and then the third time you look at it and you go, I don't want to read what I said. I'd rather read what somebody else says. But, but, but nonetheless, what a remarkable opportunity. It's the same thing again as when we talked about Miss Fulton your first class teacher from last time because there's this character apprenticeship thing going on. It's interesting because when you talked about Miss Fulton and now you're talking about Mr. Deacon, it's, it's and look at me, Miss and Mr. Because how well trained am I? My mum would be well delighted. And my yeah. dad would be, my dad, if, if he was still alive, he'd be even more impressed. The role that we have as teachers, we think it's about content. It's actually about character it's about being a human being isn't it and 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 it's about learning a way of being and becoming in the world 
And that's what the character apprenticeship gives us. You know, we model and scaffold and we coach and they explore and they articulate and they reflect. And then what we do over time is we take our hand off the rudder and we give them the rudder and allow them the opportunity to become the people who are doing the modelling and the scaffolding and, and, and coaching ourselves. They hand, you know, to use the sporting analogy, having moved on from sailing, to use the running analogy, they pass us the baton. Absolutely. I think the idea that there was that idea that those who do do, those who teach, teach, and those who uh, can't teach, <laughs> teach yeah, yeah. another subject that won't be mentioned. Um, but <laughs> it, it was just this really amazing um you know, idea that he's retired, just recently retired, but there's a beautiful outpouring just in celebration of him uh, and I'm hoping there's a collection at some stage. But it, just that kind of idea of, of where we can take it. So it makes it even more kind of authentic, which, which I absolutely love. Where'd you go to uni? So I went to university at University College Dublin and I did a bachelor's degree in English philosophy, uh, sorry, English and history with some philosophy and uh, loved that and did a then a master's in women's studies. Uh, and I was very fortunate to gain an Erasmus scholarship in Europe those days. I think they still exist. Uh, and I spent uh, time in my master's at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, which absolutely loved and really recommend anybody who ever studies and all my students, you've got to have some time abroad within your studies. Um, you know, I really relished the whole uni experience. I loved, uh, I would go there from the morning to yeah, as early in the morning, 9.30 maybe, um, but I would not <laughs> until the, um, you know, the, almost the last bus or, you know, it was because in Ireland those days, uh, you know, that was one of the beauties. We didn't drive uh, as, as young people at uni. Nobody was, I think now sometimes, um, particularly in Australia, when I've been spent a lot of time in Perth, you know, the car dictates an, an awful lot of things. Um, but we had a good time. And I remember lots of free kegs of beer that would be that come in from various mainlands of Europe and uh, they'd be put on for... Um, for events and fundraising initiatives and we would plan all these things, get together, um, we'd have a laugh and we'd sit and just dissect our lectures and talk and that was a real rich bed as well. Just we were all motivated to learn and, in fact, the, the teacher, the lecture, the instruction was just a tiny little seed but the extension, the growth, the interest uh, was from those amazing conversations that, you know, absolutely uh, loved in so many ways. You really and love learning, don't you? I do. Well, I love, I love people and people, I get energised by people and people can never stop learning. So when I think even of COVID and, and people talk about learning lost, uh, that just makes me like, what are you talking about? They learn different things. <laughs> they learn how to cook. They learn how to maybe, you know, grow something in their garden. They spent time with their parents. They looked after an elderly grandma. They learned things. It's, it's who we are. And the idea that nobody wants to learn is an absolute furphy. Everybody wants to learn. We just have to have that emotional connection. So you went back to your 
old school and you were, you were one of the assistant, uh, the boarding assistants, a residential assistant in your, yes. in your boarding school. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wonder for a moment, there, there'll be a bunch of listeners out there for whom their only experience of boarding will be Harry Potter. Um, mm-hmm. What's boarding at its best like? Boarding at its best is, again, relationship, community, feeling safe, feeling a place where you can grow and a place where you're stretched to do so many different things. So in first year, uh, so that's like equivalent of grade seven, I suppose, here, went to boarding school, 12 girls in my room, never alone, always a friend to talk. Yes, there were ups and downs. Yes, there were <laughs> hormones. Yes, there were moments of uh, irrationality mixed with right, that we were, we were girls um, and boys. Uh, it was very <laughs> eye-opening uh, to spend six years. So each of the tables would have half, half the um, gender balance. So half girls, half boys. So you'd have, we had three, four meals and we would sit down um, the school was very fortunate in the sense it was Ireland being on the periphery of Europe and as a, a natural, um, I suppose, neutrality kind of position. We had students from all over the world. Uh, I remember um, yeah, there were the members of the Tanzanian royal family were there. There were um, people from Iran and Iraq. I had breakfast with every morning, boys that would treat the girls, you know, quite differently we had uh, ambassadors kids from various places Uh, so it was this very very rich bed of intercultural understandings and we were you know pushed in a sense sports was compulsory um they but you know with great fun uh we had choirs were compulsory Uh, in those early years you were extended we would go to school we would have afternoon activities, we would have our dinner, we would go to supervise prep, and then there would be this kind of hour of free time, <laughs> and then we'd go to bed, and sometimes the lights would go out, and sometimes then it would become even more fun, um, depending on who was du- on duty, but there was always, we knew that people were, as I realised, of course, as a um uh, house mistress, you were fully aware of what was going on, but you know, an extra 10 minutes of a little bit of fun made them kind of quiet and all those kind of things. So, look, I didn't choose to send my own children to boarding school, and I sometimes regret that. And they sometimes tell me they would have liked to have gone to boarding school. I haven't necessarily taken that as an insult, um, but what they have seen is lifelong friends that I've made, which I haven't been able to see for a while because of COVID and go go back to Ireland. But we pick up where we left off. It's amazing to grow in your formative years with others. With others. Mm. And we all found our niche. My group of friends and particularly those 12 girls, I, I may be part in the drama, um, some of my friends would be, but they would be backstage. They do front of house. They, we'd all go together and celebrate this, yeah, the sense of occasion, sense of community. It, it is a little bit like there's less cats and there's no headless Nick, I don't remember. But, you know, there were some spooky photos that were sitting around, particularly of Charles II there in, uh, in his puffy pants. And But an absolute a treat. I'll tell you what it has done. It has made me realise that 
nobody is better than anybody else. Yeah, and you learn you learn that very quickly, don't you? It's a little leveling experience. And um, you know, emotional I, intelligence. That's yeah, what I, I, I think that's boarding at its best. I think that's boarding at its best, and and I, I kind of want to leave that conversation at at boarding at its best. Um, in that way, my my best friend and I have known each other 40 years this year. Um, he's a doctor here in Melbourne, married to a doctor. Yeah, Chris is probably closer to me than any other human being now, really, in terms of the bond that we've got. And his capacity to call me on my bullshit is just fabulous, really. You know, it just, just mm. cuts, cuts right through. Last time I, am part- aware, just, I am aware that it's not the same for everybody. No, uh, no, I just said, every yeah. Every school yeah, is without yeah. this. There, there are... Yeah, not everybody. Not everybody has a grand boarding experience, and, and there are some. There, there can be some, you know. I, I think, yeah, I, I think on the whole, boarding these days. Well, it's a little bit like teaching these days, isn't it? I think the terrible experiences are considerably fewer around there, and I think there's a there's a professionalism around boarding now, and an awareness and an understanding of all sorts of things, um, to do with with helping children to be at their best that probably wasn't around. Um, mm-hmm. Sounds like you had a whale of a time, which is which is just fantastic. I'm interested in how you became an English teacher. Last time we spoke, you mentioned that there was a period in your 20s where you were contemplating doing other things. Talk to me about the pathway from university into becoming a chalky. So I completed my master's in women's studies and was really ready to take on the world I was going to head into New York or I was going to work out of the Netherlands and in some I was thinking about what would I where would I go in terms of United Nations politics social justice various programs like that Um, and I was fortunate to come into some money (laughs) and so the advice, there was two pieces of advice. Well, there was really only one piece of advice I was given, um, which was that money is safe as houses, Lorna. Invest in the house. It wasn't that much. but And I thought I could invest in a house and buy a house early on and set myself up for life and be very sensible. But I, I wasn't. Maybe I went back to Miss Fulton and maybe I went back to, you know, the people that I had breakfast with uh, around the table and uh, myself and my one, my one of my very good friends um, who was at boarding school with me, we went on a round-the-world trip, which was very in vogue in 1995 and very privileged, and we backpacked through India where I bought my own sandalwood pens uh, and I did still you get, have. Did you, get, did you get the sari as well? I, I didn't get the sari, no. Okay. No, no. I'm not the shape, the right shape for a sari, I don't think. Yeah. But maybe I am. I don't know. But you, um, got the, but you got the sandalwood pens. That's the important I got the sandalwood thing. pens and a sandalwood chess set that I still have. Oh, hell of a my house now um and uh yeah so we and southeast asia and we yeah we had a great time uh there and then of course we came around uh we went to uh, the day i arrived in australia was the day i met my husband and the rest they say is history yeah sometimes i say that's the day my life ended (laughs) was the day (laughs) that uh you know it just began so, and, and, and that's the kind of thing, isn't it? You, you go through life and you think you're kind of in control and you're on a trajectory and then life shows up. And it does indeed. It's, 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 almost like, it's almost like you're living one life and then suddenly it stops and another life begins and you turn around and you go, oh, really? Oh, okay. 
you know, yeah. I, I can I can remember I can remember yeah you know, the birth of my first son James. Who for those who look at my Instagram will know that you know we're, we're recording this uh, in March of 2022, and he got married um, a couple of weeks ago. So he's 25 now. But the birth of my son that 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 did it for me. Absolutely did it. There were so many different possibilities, etc., etc., etc. And suddenly holding a little bob in my arms, and I'm going, okay, this is it. I've got it. I've got it. I know. I know now. Anyway, mm. so so you met your husband. Where'd you meet your husband? I met him in Perth. Uh, he was from. Uh, he was living in Perth uh, um, with his family. He'd grown up there. Uh, various places he'd been as well. And uh, I did have a. I had a brother and sister who also live in Perth. So they had emigrated um, earlier. I'm, I'm about. My mum was very. She had. Uh, we called it the Brady Bunch, but she had two boys. And then about eight nine years later, she had two girls, and then about eight, nine years later, she had me and my brother. <laughs> so um, they were all set up in many ways uh, in Perth, so it was a good place to arrive. And we'd been very good girls through Southeast Asia, but we decided we would like to go to a pub perhaps. Uh, so we dressed up and uh, off we went, and there I met uh, my husband at Hillary's Boat Harbour and uh, yeah, twenty. I did ask my husband last year, last night. I said, "How many years have we been married?" Is too long. <laughs> so twenty-seven uh, years. It seems to have worked. But what happened then? Of course, I wasn't going to cancel my trip. Like I had my priorities, and so we continued <laughs> around Australia, and then we went, of course, through New Zealand and Samoa and um, Fiji and so forth, and came around through the states, and then I. Um, came back to my school, King's Hospital, to do my higher diploma in education at Trinity. What was interesting was, and which I still think is quite amazing, we started in September, but uni didn't start till October. So we were immersed for the entire year in the school. And I still think it's a great model that actually pre-service and university uh, teachers could. Uh, I often think it was a bit interesting that we were invariably given the Saturday classes to take because I think some of the <laughs> of teachers were. were like, had enough of this. Oh, of course um, you were. Of course you I, were. That's like, that's like when you're a young, you know, so you're a young teacher and somehow you seem to get those year eight and year nine classes all the time, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and I do remember um, another teacher, he, he was, you know, an inspiration to me too, uh, Mr. Huggard, and he told me uh, we had this um, transition year and uh, said, would you like to teach Northern Ireland or India? And I said, oh, <laughs> so he said, I think you should do India. You've just been to India. So I taught <laughs> my first year this Indian um, history, which was really great, but uh, has very clever students in the class and uh, one of them ended up being the Prime Minister of Ireland <laughs> and I still see him and I'm like oh my gosh like this is my first year of teaching and I was I was one step ahead if even uh, I think he probably on did. your best days on your best days you on my best one, days on your best family, days you're, you're yeah. one minute ahead of them <laughs> his family were Indian but uh, I think anyway it was that that, that was certainly uh, a memory so um, the, the trip happened uh, and then I thought, oh, I better be sensible and, and get something that will get me a job. My husband, he was uh, settled and had a job here uh, in Australia, so the idea was I would move. I moved to Australia in the June, July, 
um, thinking I'd have a little bit of a holiday, but he told me after a week, you know, don't you think it's time you got a job? <laughs> <laughs> so I was very scared initially to take on a teaching job because it really matters. And I, I really felt the uh, need to, to, to give every student exactly what you know, they needed or my best. So I didn't actually go straight into teaching. I got a job in Perth um, at St Hilda's in uh, Clare, in Cottesloe uh, as a boarding house mistress. I went back to what I knew and I worked there for six months and I had six months to decide whether I'd get married. I was on a fiancé visa. I mean, I, I married him absolutely 100% for love, but there was a compulsion that we had six months to decide whether I'd get my visa or not. Um, and, right, I, doesn't it? Yeah. and I worked... Um, at the boarding school in the year 11 and 12s in Parnell House, which I thought was very, you know, suitable because Parnell is quite a, you know, figure in, in Irish history. Relatively important figure in Irish history. <laughs> so I worked there, but what was amazing was the girls, all when they left, just threw out all their textbooks and all their files and all their hair dryers and all their radios. They just exited. and. They're like, Lorna, right, well, you clean up now. And uh, I, I still, for, that was gold for an early teacher. I suddenly, you know, also had little notes that I, I didn't throw them out and uh, took little notes on T.S. Eliot and notes on this and history textbooks that I saw. Um, so, yeah, I was, uh, you know, that was a great kind of booty that I got at the end of the year. But the six months allowed me to help them with prep to help to go in, to help with their English, to see what kind of subjects I could teach, what what kind of history did they teach. I was lucky. I actually did a history unit at um, at, at university in Australian history because there was, a, I suppose, my brother and sister were in Australia. So I did know quite a bit about Australian history, so I felt quite comfortable with that. Um, but it, it was from then... I actually, yeah, applied for a job at a, a school, so Perth College, a wonderful uh, school in Mount Lawley in Perth, and uh, I joined that community and was there for 14 years. And in that time, what was really embarrassing was, um, well, it's not really embarrassing, but I enjoyed, uh, I, I came to the school and they were so super organised. They were so super organised. It, it, is, it is a very organised school. Yeah, and they had all my name. I had my pigeonhole, had my name. I had everything out. And I remember saying, because I came for this orientation day, and I said, oh, yeah, oh, thank you. And I couldn't say I was getting married on Saturday. <laughs> Which was the debate? Did I change my name? But I, I didn't. I kept with my maiden name, and I'm kind of glad I kept with my maiden name because then uh, a major franchise, which you've already mentioned, came out, and uh, that would actually be my surname uh, would be something connected to that franchise, and I will only take that name if I become a, a professor, because I married a man called Snape. I've got <laughs> <laughs> And I, I think I felt I over the other side of the world, I wanted uh, Mrs. Snape just didn't, uh, maybe I wanted just to be closer to my mammy, uh, to be Miss Began, and that, that's what I stayed. There it is. Do you know, when I went into this conversation with you, I thought we were going to sort of 
take it in a particular direction. But what I'm beginning to understand is that future fit school communities are made up of future fit educators. And to understand what makes a future fit educator, you need to understand where they come from. And you need to understand the crucible in which they're formed and in which their, their practice has formed. What did you learn from these early days that has helped you in the senior positions you've got now? And, and we, you know, we don't need to go through all of those positions because everyone's going to look you up on LinkedIn anyway. So, because so, that's what we do these days, we, we sticky beak on LinkedIn. But um, the, what did you learn that has helped you to succeed in so many senior management roles, which are all about helping people step into tomorrow? Really, it is meeting people where they're at, understanding the culture that you're in and rolling up your sleeves. Like I do feel uh, I have no problem getting down and dirty, walking the walk. Talk, uh, you know, I, I do, um, if I say I'm going to do something, we work hard to get things. I think where my career has shown me nothing's been particularly easy. I've had great people around me. I remember um, one of the pieces of information, which is only now that I realise how wise uh, Judith Cotter, who was a you know an inspirational uh, prince uh, princess, <laughs> I was going to say, an inspirational principal. Um, but she, when I went after uh, Saint Hilda's, she said to me that usually at uh, Perth College she would employ. Uh, it was like a reward for a great education or like a great career of teaching. But she would employ me because I was cheap <laughs> um, as a graduate teacher. Um, and I said that I wouldn't, you know, that she, uh, I wouldn't let her, let her down. But what I realised then, which is what she was saying, was if you come into some of those great schools, um, which every school should be great, like a fully you know believe that but some of those um you know what, what I've seen is prestigious schools there are people who are very comfortable in those roles it's very hard to actually really make yourself shine early on when there's just such amazing people who are already in those schools and are comfortable in in some of those positions so yeah, absolutely absolutely and and, and if, look if I look at your your career you were well grounded in one school to start with, but then you've moved quite often into a range of different positions in and around that. And if there's any, any young game changers out there listening to this right now, any younger chalkies who are thinking about the career and they're in that comfortable position, they're in a great place, et cetera, et cetera, all I can do is encourage you every time you're thinking about the next role, you need to make the assumption that that should come at another school. It may come at the school that you're at, but you should never assume that there will be a job for you at the next level in the school that you're at because you can become comfortable way too easily. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by that notion that you said that it's never easy because I think, I, think I, I, I want you to tease that out for us if you can. Yeah, I, it, I suppose it is. I came into a school. It was a, a, a wonderful place of academic excellence and it was hard work 
to prove yourself. It was hard work to, to get involved in so many different co-curricular. Uh, I do remember a wise colleague, you know, said, Lorna, you've got to learn to say no. Um, you've got to learn how, how to survive. Um, I suppose in those early years at Perth College, it was it was learning how to be newly married and teach and be part of a, a new culture. I then was lucky in the sense that I did stay at Perth College for 14 years. And I suppose what's slightly different um, is that whilst I didn't move school, I probably did have a, a change in the sense that at Perth College, I was able to have both my children um, go through my pregnancies, have a beautiful supportive environment there uh, to bring my, my children to life. But I had a boy and a girl. Uh, and uh, this is where which wins, you know, which wins out. Um, I know uh, Quinton Bryce uh, heard her speak once and she said, like, women can have it all, but you can't have it, but not necessarily all at once. And I think that's where once the two children uh, were born, which will be, you know, they're my legacy, they're my, my future, they're my immortality in, in whatever, no pressure, kids. Um, but uh, <laughs> they, um, I, I think there was a point where I, I was really uh, fortunate and supported by, you know, Jenny Athel, who also is a principal, who I really admire and respect and made a, a great commitment to women in leadership to support women who have children to continue in their career. Yeah, one of my favourite former clients, Jenny Athel. What a, what, a, what a gloriously beautiful human being. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally endorse that. So I'm indebted uh, to, to her to allow me space to grow um, and, and have my family. And then uh, it, it was really a move. Um, my children went to uh, St. Mark's because I was really keen. I wasn't going to be like my mother and have six children. I had two, a boy and a girl, and I wanted them to have an experience that they grew up together in many ways so I again was really lucky to get a, a job at St Mark's Anglican Community School in Hillary's which opened up the experience of co-education which was of course what my own um, education had been before that my, my experience was largely um, in all-girls schools uh, and that was such an also amazing uh, place. It was a relative, you know, it's, it's now what, 30 years or so. It was part of the Anglican Schools Commission. But in that school for that 10 years, I visited every kind of continent and, and, and so forth. So I suppose what I'm saying is there are different, it's not easy. You'd have to take the opportunities and you have to take stock of what's important to you. And there are times when I, I step back I step sideways, I put other things perhaps in priority at that time. That is something that I certainly have no regrets. There were times when I did stand up to have various promotional positions and, you know, was, was declined or uh, torn down in some ways. Um, there's those people who kind of believe in you and supporting you and you've got to believe that the time is right and the cultural fit is right. But 
at St. Mark's, as I said, I went to every continent, uh, had amazing experiences. I went to Harvard Graduate School, all those kind of things. Um, and uh, a principal um, who's still out there, Cameron Herbert, he had a different kind of um, mindset and believed in me. Uh, he, he asked for people to pitch their big ideas uh, as a new principal and we had our, our presentations and I sat down and said, okay, I'm going big. If you ask me to, to think big, here it is. Uh, so I presented it and um, I remember him coming up to me and saying, I don't think they're ready for you yet. <laughs> and again, again, a really, really lovely person, Cameron, yeah. and um, just a very dry sense of humour as well too. So Yeah, yeah. And, and he and I said, come on, like this is it. Like you've read Sagan Robinson, like you know that, that where is this change to education? So, you know, believe in me. And, and he did. He believed in me and backed me, supported me. And from that, we achieved absolutely extraordinary things in terms of the strategic plan at the school, making global connections, partnerships around the world. And that really showed me that, it, that, that anything is, is possible. Um, from that, even a commitment to sustainability, uh, three community gardens with a, a minimum budget, but with a lot of sweat and determination, you can achieve anything. Uh, and was really open and honest about the role of principal and, and, and the good parts. Uh, and the the difficult parts, and I often hear his his uh, voice there. And then at St Mark's, I felt there was a time, and I ticked off the various other parts of the trajectory. Again, it's hard work, you know. It's doing the masters, doing the finance for um, non financiers, or accounting for non accounting, uh, getting the business acumen up there, doing all those kind of things. Uh, I really felt I was kind of, you know, hitting goals and I thought maybe I'll try my hand, I'll put up, you know, pick me, let's see what, what's out there. And the, the advice I was, I was was that maybe I'd gone too much to the gates, maybe I'd looked too much to the world, too much to industry, to community, to partners, to working with uh, local government and get a meaty deputies role, which is what brought me to Genazano. I'd love if we could talk about Genazano this week and maybe this is a good place for us to wrap up. But if, if, I, if I listen to everything that you're saying about yourself and your preparation to become future fit, like we forget the word fit in that notion enough. We think a lot about the future, but there's a piece about getting, getting yourself fit. You've got, and there's a piece about psychologically and physically and emotionally and perhaps even spiritually being ready for the challenges that lie ahead and making the assumption, as you said earlier, that nothing is necessarily going to be easy, but this is something worth rising to. You know, we talk about students who need to know what they're learning and that's aspiration. There's a journey that you've got to go on of encountering connection and challenge and discovery to build the character and the competencies you need, and that's experience. You need to collaborate with people around you, particularly mentors and experts, to help you become the co-authors of this narrative that, of that learning journey. And that's, that's agency. We need to discover our own identities and, and how best to express them 
through learning and relationships, and that's our sense of voice. And then we need the time and the support and the conditions to make the most of our learning, and, and, and that's resource. In other words, so all of those bits and pieces which are integral to today's learning for tomorrow's world, which is what we would call the new social contract for education at uh, Game Changers and the School for Tomorrow, you've lived it. This is you. This is your life. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. I would love it if we could come back one more time next week and talk about what you're doing at Gen now. Righto. See you then. See you then. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.